Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week, the weekly podcast where health affairs editors talk about the latest health policy news. I'm Michael Gerber. And I'm Jessica Bylander. How are you doing, Jess? Pretty good. I want to remind everyone, don't forget, you have until the end of the month to enter our You're a Health Policy Wonk contest. So make sure to fill out that form and send us those entries by Wednesday. Yeah, and I sounds like we're getting a lot of responses and we've seen a few and they're they're pretty funny. So, and if you are a health policy wonk, you won't want to miss our next policy spotlight that's on June 1st, where our editor-in-chief will be hosting Carrie Kala, the outgoing director of health analysis at the Congressional Budget Office. So, that's going to be at noon Eastern. And I'm definitely looking forward to that and plan on tuning in. But on to this week, um a lot, a lot of news in Washington, mostly about the debt ceiling and how it might come crashing down. But we're gonna we're gonna skip over that today and actually talk about uh, start out talking about something coming out of New York, where just this week, um, resident physicians at Elmhurst Hospital Center in Queens in New York City had been on strike, and they just resolved the strike after a few days. And while it, it was only one hospital in New York, we do think it has a lot of um, potential meaning and impact for healthcare and healthcare workers. Yeah, really interesting news coming out of New York. Um, I was interested to see that that was the first strike of physicians in New York City in over 30 years. Yeah, and it was um, it was a hospital, it's interesting, a hospital where the residents who work there are um, employees of Mount Sinai Health System, one of the big health systems in New York City and um, nearby areas. Uh, but the hospital itself is a public hospital and really was in the news, you know, just over three years ago as one of the first um, hotspots of, of the COVID pandemic where um, the doctors there, the residents, the nurses and other um, staff were really on the front lines. Um, and that was a big part of what they were talking about, these residents, when they were going on strike. Um, for one, they were paid less uh, than the residents at the other hospitals in the Mount Sinai system, um, about $7,000 less a year. Um, and then they also were asking for uh, things like hazard pay, potentially, during pandemics or other um, incidents. And so uh, part of this deal was that they would um, get an increase in the salary over uh, the next several years. Um, as well as some of those other benefits that they were hoping to get. Um, and they are uh, represented by a union, the Committee of Interns and Residents. Um, and just a note that this was really only the internal medicine, pediatrics, and psychiatry residents, not uh, other specialties. The details of the deal they agreed to this week include wage increases of 18% over the next um, couple years. Um, it actually does go back retroactively to uh, last fall. But interestingly, uh, when these residents, and, and as we'll talk about, some across the country are going on strike or coming up with these deals, uh, clearly it only impacts them for a short term, but really could impact future medical trainees um, who are starting a residency. And I, I found this really interesting also because I, I happened to be talking to a neighbor a few days ago whose son actually just graduated medical school and, and chose his residency partially based on the fact that the program he's going to has a union. And he um, feels that that's important, which I think is a lot different from um, other physicians and uh, what my uh, my physicians in my family were considering when they were choosing residency programs in the past. 
Well, it's really interesting to choose a residency program based on that. You hear a lot about choosing your specialty based on kind of what it will pay in the future, particularly with how much um, student loan debt uh, medical students are graduating with. So um, that's like a new flavor of determining where people end up. And um, so I've been reading about this lately as well, and the increase in union activities among medical residents, and kind of just learning more about why why this has become more and more of a movement. So residents have long lamented how much they get paid, as well as the long hours and sometimes limited benefits they face. And the pay is definitely not as much as I would have thought. So while medical residents have finished medical school and gotten their MD, they are still in training and they're not making those high wages that we typically associate with physicians. According to the American Medical Association, the average first-year resident makes about $60,000 a year. And that doesn't increase exponentially during those years of residency. Um, And that period of time where they're still a resident can last anywhere from three to seven years, depending on the specialty. So meanwhile, as as I mentioned, the typical medical student graduates with about $200,000 in debt. And a lot are saying they don't even make enough to cover rent in some of the more expensive cities where they're doing their residency. I was reading an op-ed that said that some resident physicians in L.A. County had resorted to living in their cars to make ends meet. Childcare is another big issue that I've heard about, as you know, many of the residents are at the point in their lives where they're starting to have children, and yet they can't afford the cost of childcare um, today. Yeah, it's it's definitely an issue. Uh, I, I full disclosure, I happen to be married to a physician, and I met her during residency, and we got engaged during residency, and and she said yes when I proposed, but the second thing she said was, "Do you know how much debt I'm in?" Um, <laughs> and of course, they have some programs where you don't, um, based on your salary, you're not paying it off as much, but it meant she wasn't even um, putting a dent in that debt during residency, so she was. Um, literally her med school debt was continuing to go up because she wasn't even covering all of the interest while um, while in residency. Yeah, there is this increasing trend toward unionization among medical residents, um, and they've been securing some wins, including that recent news in Elmhurst. So this past February, medical residents for University of California Health, which covers the University of California's Um, six academic medical centers, including UCSF, signed their first system-wide contract. And under that contract, residents got a 16% pay increase over two years, four weeks of vacation, and eight weeks of paid leave. And about 5,000 residents are covered under that contract. So it's a big deal, a big development. Not all residents and fellows are in these unions, but the numbers are growing, particularly in the wake of the COVID pandemic, The Committee of Interns and Residents, um, the largest union covering medical interns and residents in the U.S., grew from 17,000 members in 2020 to 24,000 members today. Earlier this month, most of the residents and fellows at the University of Pennsylvania voted to unionize um, and that they just join a slew of other um, residents at other programs who are joining unions. There's mixed opinions of whether unionization is the right move. Some in medical education have argued that since residents are still technically in training, they're gaining that expensive training while also receiving a stipend. Um, But that argument doesn't seem to resonate with many, particularly when you do have residents um, caring for patients and providing a much needed workforce to healthcare institutions. So there's a big debate, you know, whether unions create an adversarial relationship with physicians who are training them or 
whether other avenues could be a better means of getting their needs and concerns addressed. Of course, many residents um, in the past, you know, several months as this has been going on have been saying those other avenues aren't really um, taken as seriously as, as when a union comes to negotiate. I think just it's important also to to remember that while they are in training, you know, they're still bringing in revenue. They are seeing patients mm-hmm. um, and and hospitals. Um, you know, the the term resident dates back to when they actually lived in the hospital and sort of came to be to help staff hospitals. Um, so they they serve a dual purpose, and I think they're as much there to keep the healthcare system afloat as they are to get the training that they're getting. And you flagged some other recent news um, that speaks to another way healthcare workers are poised to have more protections around their working conditions, and and that's in Minnesota, right? Yeah, so sort of a transition, not talking about uh, residents anymore, but um, the governor of Minnesota and the legislature there just uh, enacted a law that creates a nursing home workforce standards board. So this board is composed of three government agency reps from the departments of Human Services, Health, and Labor and Industry in the state of Minnesota, and then three representatives of nursing home employers and three people representing nursing home workers or worker organizations. So the governor will appoint those members, and then this board will will meet regularly to investigate uh, nursing home work standards and to to actually create some rules. They uh, are authorized to establish minimum standards for nursing homes to protect the health and safety of workers and establish wage standards. So they could set a minimum wage potentially for um, for nursing home workers across the state. It's really the first board of its kind as uh, far as I can tell. So I think no one's quite sure exactly how it'll work. Um, they did put um, some rules in that law that say, you know, they can't just double the minimum wage for workers and expect nursing homes to just suddenly have to pay that. Um, Basically, if they do an analysis and find that their rules or their wage standards exceed what nursing homes can pay based on the payment rates um, that the nursing homes receive from the state and from commercial payers, um, then those rules won't go into effect until the legislature actually appropriates those funds, increases the payment rate to then increase the pay. So um, unclear exactly what impact this will have, but clearly um, the unions were in support of this and feel that it will give nursing home workers potentially better pay, better benefits, and and more rights. That's interesting because um, when you were talking about this, I thought, you know, is this a way kind of around unionization and would it take some of the power away from workers? But as you said, the unions are in support of this initiative. So clearly they feel that um, the goals of this board are aligned with the goals that a union would have for for this workforce. Right. We'll see. It could uh it could just get I I could see there being a lot of trouble um trying to get things passed by the board and then figure out how to whether the legislature will fund those rules or not or where they can find the funding for it, but um I think only time will tell. Um it is interesting, you know, we the Health Affairs published a study just about a year ago that did find that nursing homes that were unionized had lower mortality rates. Um, for the residents of the nursing homes and lower worker infection rates from COVID-19 for a period during uh, 2020 and 2021 when two of the major COVID waves were hitting. So the study didn't look at the exact mechanisms behind those findings, but it could be related to, you know, unionized 
um, nursing homes might have higher pay, better benefits. It might mean workers weren't traveling back and forth to multiple jobs, had better sick leave, um, access to better PPE. And it could be that a board like this can can help bring those things to a greater number of nursing homes. Yeah, I, I just think with the growing union activity that we talked about earlier um, and these other moves in healthcare, it'll be really interesting to study kind of how that impacts the quality of life for workers as well as how it impacts patient care. Um, you know, I was looking in terms of the residents and um, there's really not a ton of research out there, but a 2019 study of surgical residents found that when residents were unionized, they, they did have, you know, more vacation benefits, higher housing stipends. But a lot of the other important outcomes that you would want to be tracking, including burnout, suicidality, job satisfaction, and salary, were the same whether the residents were unionized or not. So um, definitely looking toward uh, more research on that. Can't generalize just from that one study, but it's something to check out. Yeah, definitely. Definitely have to keep an eye on on those outcomes, as well as I think the the bigger outcomes for the healthcare system in general of whether paying residents more will enable more of them to go into some of the lower paying fields after residency, like primary care, mental health, where we definitely need um, more clinicians out there and have a shortage. Well, Michael, I I can't leave without wishing you a happy EMS week. I know that's um, a field that you worked in for many years. Thank you, Jess. Yeah, as a um, a former full-time paramedic and currently still certified, I do appreciate it and want to share the same sentiments with all the other uh, frontline EMS personnel and everyone who supports them out there. Uh, speaking of healthcare workforce and areas that are dealing with some of these same issues of workforce shortages and low pay and benefits, um, it's certainly a, a good chance to recognize the role they play. Um, in our healthcare system. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think that's a great place to wrap up. Thanks everyone for listening to another episode of Health Affairs This Week. If you like this episode, tell a friend, leave a review, and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.